Madeleine Albright, the first female U.S. Secretary of State who served under the Clinton administration, has died. According to a statement from her family, she was 84 years old. The Albright legacy coming up on this Wednesday, March 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Russia's war on Ukraine has left other Eastern European countries feeling vulnerable, but also hopeful. Nobody was expecting, and especially not the Russians, uh, that the Ukrainians would demonstrate such resistance, resilience, and unity. We'll hear more from the president of the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. These stories and a preview of the Sweet 16 coming up. It's 4.01. News headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Madeleine Albright, the first woman to serve as Secretary of State, has died. She was 85. The cause was cancer. As a girl, she fled persecution in Czechoslovakia and came to the U.S., where, as NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, she's being remembered today as a champion of democracy and human rights. Born in 1937 in Prague, her father was a member of the Czechoslovak Foreign Service. Following a communist coup, her family immigrated to the United States, where Albright went on to earn a Ph.D. at Columbia University. After a brief stint on Capitol Hill, she worked as a staff member in the Jimmy Carter administration and on the National Security Council. In 1993, she was appointed by President Clinton to ambassador to the United Nations. Three years later, she made history after Clinton appointed her to Secretary of State becoming the highest-ranking woman in government at the time. She promoted the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons and eastward expansion of NATO. She pushed for military intervention during the humanitarian crisis in Kosovo and was a fierce advocate for human rights. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News. President Biden is arriving in Europe one month into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He will discuss next steps with NATO allies in Brussels, as his administration today formally accused Russia's armed forces of committing war crimes. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Washington is promising to track atrocities for future trials. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he carefully reviewed U.S. intelligence and public information about Russia's attacks before reaching the assessment that, quote, Russia's forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. His point person on the matter, Beth Van Skok, says it's important to shine a light on this. It's also extremely important to continue to document what's happening on the ground to preserve that information as potential evidence for future accountability purposes. She says Russia has bombed apartment buildings, schools, hospitals and critical infrastructure in its, quote, unprovoked war of choice in Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Today's Supreme Court confirmation hearing for Katanji Brown-Jackson is expected to wrap up in the next few hours. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has the latest. Judge Jackson has shown herself to be calm and careful and likely did enough to convince Democrats to stick together and vote for her. And that's what's most important here as far as confirmation goes, because Democrats narrowly control the Senate and she only needs 51 votes to be confirmed. The White House is holding out hope that some Republicans could cross over and vote for Jackson, but those most likely won't come from Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Many of them were more interested in airing grievances and scoring political points, particularly on crime and how racism is taught in schools. Those are areas Republicans have focused on against Democratic candidates in this election year. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The Dow closed down 448 points. 
You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's new hope that the youngest Massachusetts residents could gain access to a COVID-19 vaccine in the coming months. Cambridge-based Moderna says it has data that show its small-dose vaccine for children under six years old is safe and effective. The company says it plans to ask for FDA emergency use authorization in a matter of weeks. WBUR's Jack Mitchell has more. Dr. Sabrina Asumu at Boston Medical Center says she was excited to take a look at Moderna's findings. She calls them encouraging, adding the caveat that the data will undergo further regulatory scrutiny. As the mother of a three-year-old, Asumu says this kind of step toward possible authorization brings relief to anxious parents. But she says that's not the only reason for urgency. It is true that children are less likely to get severe disease from COVID, but children do get COVID, children do get hospitalized from COVID, and children do die from COVID. Asumu says now is a good time for parents and guardians to check in with a medical professional if they have questions about vaccination. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jack Mitchell. The city of Boston is creating a new office to help the LGBTQ plus community. Mayor Michelle Wu says the office will help develop policies to advance the rights of Boston residents who identify as LGBTQ plus. Wu says black and brown members of the trans community face disproportionate levels of violence and discrimination. The city is looking for an executive director to lead the office. The Speaker of the Massachusetts House is committing to reform mental and behavioral health care in the state. Speaker Ron Mariano said during a virtual forum today that mental health care has not gotten the attention it deserves in the years past. He says any legislation from the House would aim to build on similar legislation already under consideration in the state Senate. Governor Charlie Baker is also lobbying for his own bill that would require insurers to dramatically increase behavioral health spending. 43 degrees in the Boston area. We've got some sloppy weather on the way tonight. Rain, sleet after midnight, lows about 36 degrees. For tomorrow, should be a cloudy, rainy day, breezy, temperatures about 43 degrees. Friday, partly sunny skies with highs in the low 60s. Again, 43 degrees now in Boston at 406. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Idaho has become the first state to copy a Texas law that bans most abortions in that state. Idaho Governor Brad Little signed the bill into law today. NPR's Sarah McCammon has been following this. She joins us now. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Juana. So we've heard a lot about what has been happening in Texas since last September when that state banned most abortions. Tell us, what does this new Idaho law do? Well, like the one in Texas, it bans most abortions around six weeks before many people realize they're pregnant. And like Texas, this Idaho law also relies on ordinary citizens to enforce it by filing lawsuits against abortion providers. I talked to Misty Deli carpini tolman the Idaho State Director for Planned Parenthood, about what this would mean there. Unfortunately, we don't even have to guess about what this will look like because we've kind of been watching what's been happening in Texas. So we already know what this looks like. And one of what it looks like is many patients traveling out of state for abortions if they have the means to do so and facing some really difficult decisions if they don't. Mm. Now, the Idaho law is modeled after the law in Texas, but they are not exactly the same, are they? 
Right. Idaho's law narrows the scope of who can sue. Those people include the patient, certain members of the patient's family, including parents and siblings, also the person who impregnated the patient and some of his family members. So it's not just anyone, you know, like the Texas law, but Mm. Shakira Sanders, a law professor at the University of Idaho, says in practice, this is a distinction without a difference. If there are 10 siblings and parents, all of those people can sue you. And so you can see how one lawsuit could pretty much wipe out an entire clinic. Penalties for doctors who violate this law are twice as high as those in Texas, starting at $20,000 as well. Okay. As you mentioned, this law does allow certain family members to file lawsuits against abortion providers. And there's been a lot of concern about what that could mean, particularly in situations involving sexual assault. Sarah, what can you tell us there? Yeah, this came up during the legislative debate in the Idaho House last week. I want to play an exchange. Here's Representative Ned Burns, a Democrat, questioning one of the bill's co-sponsors. I understand that someone who has committed a rape would not be able to sue if an abortion were to take place. Would a family member of said rapist be able to sue? Would they have standing? If it is the uh, parents, siblings, aunts and uncles, grandparents, then yes. Now that second voice was Republican Representative Steve Harris, a co-sponsor of the bill. It also says that a rapist cannot sue an abortion provider under this law for terminating a pregnancy. But as we heard, it doesn't preclude that person's family members from doing so. And the Idaho law does contain an exception allowing abortions in cases of rape or incest, unlike the one in Texas. But that's limited. It's only if the victim reports the attack to law enforcement, which many victims don't. And in a statement today, Governor Brad Little expressed concerns about that and asked the legislature to address any unintended consequences. But he did sign the bill into law nonetheless. Hmm. Sarah, what else are you hearing from people who support this legislation? Well, I spoke to Carol Tobias with National Right to Life, which has been promoting this kind of legislation around the country. And simply put, she wants pregnant people to continue these pregnancies regardless of the circumstances. And that includes rape. I think we need to do everything possible to save lives. And we would encourage anybody to take steps necessary to protect that life. Sarah, in the couple seconds we have left here, what's next? Any chance that this law could be blocked in court? Well, it's set to take effect in about 30 days. Reproductive rights groups are weighing all of their options. But as we saw in Texas, court challenges to this type of legislation can be really difficult uh, because of the unusual way the law is written. Meanwhile, several other states are considering similar proposals. That is NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Leaders of NATO and the G7 hold an emergency summit this week in Brussels to discuss the war in Ukraine. But Ukrainian officials are hoping for more than speeches and pledges of solidarity. Ukraine wants weapons and sanctions to fight back against Russia. NPR's Jason Bobian joins us from Lviv. Hey, Jason. Hey, Ari. First, let me ask you about reports that Russia has lost somewhere between 7,000 and 15,000 troops already in the first month of the war. Even the low end of that number is wildly high. Give us some perspective on this. Yeah, I mean, this is getting a lot of play here. People are paying attention to this. Uh, these reports are coming from unnamed NATO officials, and they are estimates. You know, But if these numbers are true, you know, at least 7,000 dead, those are devastating losses for the Russians. To, to put this in context, the U.S. lost 2,500 service members in Afghanistan over the course of two decades. So this number of deaths for the Russians in just the first four weeks is staggering. 
All right, now let's turn to the upcoming meetings in Brussels. NATO leaders and leaders from the G7 are gathering specifically to discuss the crisis in Ukraine. Yeah. What do Ukrainians hope to come out of this? Well, you know, to try to get a better sense of, of that, I, I spoke today with the former Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko. He was president from 2014 to 2019. Poroshenko says what Ukraine needs right now from the international community are even harsher economic sanctions on Russia and more weapons to fight Russian troops on the ground. We need anti-aircraft, anti-missiles and jet fighters. Given that NATO has rejected requests for a no-fly zone, Poroshenko wants NATO to donate any MiG fighters that they can get their hands on to, to Ukraine. Ukraine wants MiGs because they're, these are the planes that their pilots have been trained on and, and know how to fly. How optimistic is he that NATO and European allies will come through with more military support? Um, he believes that they will, but he is concerned that that support might not come fast enough. Uh, he makes the argument that Ukraine is just the first step in Putin's military efforts. Next, Putin might go after the Baltic states, he says, or try to annex Moldova. His message to the world is... This is not you assisting or helping Ukraine. This is not true. You investing in your own security. And that's why it's so important tomorrow NATO meeting and just sanction against Russian oligarchy is not enough. He wants even more sanctions against Russia, and he wants pledges that the international community is going to help repair the billions and billions of dollars in damages that Ukraine has already suffered in this war. So many millions of people have fled Ukraine. Where was the former president when you spoke to him? You know, he's still in the capital. He's in Kyiv. Uh, we spoke over Skype. Uh, he was describing the constant shelling that's happening just a few miles away from the office he was in. He talked about the air raid sirens that are going off constantly. Poroshenko said that it's devastating for him and for most Ukrainians to see the destruction that's happening all over their country over the last month. Uh, he spoke specifically about the besieged port city of Mariupol. Uh, Putin has argued that one of the reasons he invaded Ukraine was to protect Russian-speaking people in the country, and this, this was Poroshenko's reaction to that. Do you know, I'm not sure that you know, that, that Mariupol is most Russian-speaking city in Ukraine? More than 82% of Mariupol uh, inhabitants speaks Russian. Poroshenko says the destruction of Mariupol now just illustrates the cruelty of Putin's invasion. That is NPR's Jason Bobian reporting from Lviv in western Ukraine. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome, Ari. More than three million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded. For the crowds that have streamed across the border at one Polish border crossing, they leave behind the air raid sirens and the sounds of war and are welcomed by this. That's musician Davide Martello playing his baby grand piano at the Medica border crossing, the busiest one between Ukraine and Poland. Martello is from Germany. I just came here like 15 hours, drove, I drove 15 hours. It's definitely better than staying at home in front of the TV and watching the news, you know. So instead of watching the news, Martello headed towards it. He put his cat in the car. He's cool with everything. Any, any, anyone and he loves people. He hitched up his piano and towed it those 15 hours. Then he parked it on the dirt at the sprawling aid station that has sprung up at Medica, which is where Martello was when we reached him. I'm at my piano right now. I wanted to play something. Uh, what about Imagine? Imagine. 
During the past few weeks, Martello has watched the aid station at Medica grow. People are coming in. They need like food. They need uh, clothes. Like see all the clothes here. Behind him are piles of donated clothing and firewood. Volunteers pass out tea, food, and toiletries, and Martello provides the music. After crossing, people come to him with requests, like this duet sung by a woman bundled up in the cold. The notes drift through the air along with campfire smoke, adding what he hopes is a bit of warmth to people's welcome. They, they ask me like songs in Ukrainian, and I try to, to play them. I'm trying to learn the songs like right away. Martello says one of the most moving experiences of his life came recently when an elderly woman held a blanket over his head, protecting him from the snow. Like I was playing yesterday, and she was singing it with me, next to me, and with the blanket on me, like, and it was snowing. That was a moment. That was like a crazy moment. Thank you. <laughs> Martello says he's just not sure yet when he'll pack up and head home. If I would go back to Germany, I would be, man, what am I doing here? People still need some positivity, some some art, some music, you know? I mean, I wish there would be more musicians here, but I, I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> and with that, Martello had to go. Okay, so it was nice seeing you and talk to you, but uh, I'm gonna play some more. People had gathered around the piano. Yeah, people are already, already waiting. And Martello played. All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll remember Madeline Albright coming up next on WBUR. In business, the price of oil is rising, and today the value of the Dow stocks fell. The Dow was down more than one and a quarter percent, or 449 points. It finished at 34,359. S&P and Nasdaq also lost about the same, about one and a quarter percent. S&P ended down at 44.56. The Nasdaq settled at 13,923. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at VRTX.com. Red Sox and Twins are in the eighth inning of spring training play. It's 10-4 Twins so far. Familiar faces on his way back to the Patriots' defense. ESPN's Mike Reese reports cornerback Malcolm Butler will return to New England on a two-year free agent deal. Butler went from undrafted rookie to pro bowler during his stint earlier with the Pats. He was also infamously benched by head coach Bill Belichick during the Super Bowl in 2018. The forecast is next. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga, semesteroff.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Vivaldi's Gloria and J.S. and C.P.E. Bach, April 1st and 3rd at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org.
You wouldn't know by looking out right now, but we've got messy weather on the way. Tonight, rain and sleet after midnight, lows about 36 degrees. Tomorrow, a rainy day, breezy, highs just about 43. It is 43 now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Madeleine Albright has died at the age of 84. As the first woman to serve as Secretary of State, she changed the face of diplomacy around the world. Her family said the cause of death was cancer. Albright was an outspoken American diplomat even after she left office. Here she was in 2012 upon learning that she would be receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It took me quite a long time to find my voice, but I'm not going to be quiet now. Albright was born in Prague. Her family fled Czechoslovakia, first from the Nazis and then the communists. In the Clinton administration, she served alongside White House Chief of Staff John Podesta, who joins us now. Welcome, and I am sorry for your loss. Uh, Thank you, Ari. Uh, Those of us who knew her are really sad day today. Uh, She was a wonderful person. How would you describe her approach to, uh, approach to diplomacy and her view of the U.S. role in the world? Well, look, she was a fierce uh, advocate for freedom, for democracy. Uh, I think that had a lot to do with her own upbringing, her uh, fleeing Nazi Germany, uh, coming in, in the United States, having the opportunity to do what uh, I think she wanted that for everyone around the world. And so whether it was human rights, democracy, you know, we worked together uh, on the ball and uh, on the war in Kosovo. Uh, understood that uh, her advocacy was really on behalf of our country first, uh, but really on behalf of uh, humanity across the globe. The New York Times quoted her as saying, everybody has their own style and mine is people to people. Tell us what that looked like in practice. (laughs) Well, you know, she was just charming and uh, I think was a mentor to so many people and self and uh, style. You know, she always uh, she even wrote a book about the pin she wore for her diplomatic meeting. Right, she she had this big collection of pins, and she wore a different one depending on what the purpose of the meeting was. She was always thoughtful about it, you know, and and was to whoever she was meeting with. uh, And and people loved her. She, you know, uh, with us who had had served in in government, uh, her Democratic colleagues. But she also had a group of uh, former foreign ministers that uh, she met with once a year and really loved the experience of... Uh, continuing, she was the only woman, of course, hmm. their leader, and uh, and try to work as as uh, really elder, uh, as I put it, men, but as elder state, try to help uh, uh, that would freedom and and uh, security for people. 
the line is a little bit choppy, but 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 we're we're able to make out what you're saying. Um, I'm curious if, if there's a moment behind the scenes that you will always remember that that you could share with us that reflects the less public side of her personality. Well, you know, uh, uh, Madeline was uh, always someone was kind of a hoot. You know, <laughs> would uh, whether it was Aspen wearing her cowboy uh, or in the uh, Oval Office. Uh, during President Clinton, you know, just was uh, someone who uh, people warmed to. And mm-hmm. uh, she was, uh, I think, uh, again, always so thoughtful about uh, people and, and uh, built a firm that was really uh, built around a bunch uh, of women who had been friends of hers in the administration that, uh, you know, was a place where had fun. And that's how I remember her was someone who was serious, but always knew how to have fun, how to sing, how to stand up in front of a crowd and sing a song, wear a fun hat, uh, do a, uh, even with, even with her enemies, you know, she would, uh, uh, or her adversaries, uh, with foreign ministers. Uh, All right. Well, thank you for sharing, sharing down. your memories of your late friend Madeline Albright with us. That's that's John Podesta. He was chief of staff Thanks, in the Clinton White House and worked closely with Secretary Albright, who died today at age 84. March Madness rolls on this week. The men's and women's Division I college basketball tournaments have whittled their respective fields down to 16 teams. The men begin playing in the so-called Sweet 16 tomorrow, the women on Friday. And now NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman joins me to preview the upcoming action. Hey, Tom. Hi, Juana. All right, the men play tomorrow, so let's start there. I love a good David versus Goliath story in sports, and I guess basketball fans' favorite David right now is the St. Peter's Peacocks. Tom, what can you tell us about them? The Peacocks are the pride of Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, They pulled off the upset of the tournament so far in the first round as a lowly 15th seed beat number two seeded Kentucky, one of college basketball's perennially top programs. Um, Then the Peacocks beat Murray State and became just the third number 15 seed to make it this far to the Sweet 16. After that win, St. Peter's head coach Shaheen Holloway was asked about Murray State trying to muscle the Peacocks with physical play. Here's what he said. I got guys from New Jersey and New York City. You think we scared of anything? You think we write about guys trying to muscle us and tough us out? We do that. Our bodies probably don't look like it, but these guys play very hard and very physical. So that I wasn't worried about at all. When you got tough, hard-nosed kids, they, they ready to play. And Juana, they're not just tough kids from New Jersey and New York. The worldly Peacocks also have players from Central African Republic, Mali, Puerto Rico, Senegal, and they've been pretty tough too. Now, St. Peter's uh, Sweet 16 matchup is against number three seeded Purdue, which plays great offense. St. Peter's has been playing great defense. We will see which prevails and whether the Peacocks can keep, sorry about this, strutting. (laughs) Had to sneak that one in. All right, so Gonzaga was the number one (laughs) overall seed going into the men's tournament. They are also in the Sweet 16. Are they still the favorites? Yes, but, and and the but is because in its two wins so far, Gonzaga hasn't exactly dominated, and the Bulldogs have relied heavily on star uh, junior forward Drew Timmy in both games. He's been fantastic. If future opponents, starting with Arkansas tomorrow, figure out how to contain Timmy, the Zags may be vulnerable. 
Turning now to the women's tournament, all of the number one seeds, including defending champion Stanford, have made it to the Sweet 16, but I take it there have also been a few surprises. Yeah, there have been. Uh, Creighton and South Dakota, the biggest ones, they are still alive. They're uh, number 10 seeds. They pulled off some big upsets early on. Uh, South Dakota beat Baylor by double digits. Creighton did a great job con uh, containing Iowa's star player, Caitlin Clark, the top scorer in the nation. Now, these wins seem to change a narrative that the women's tournament isn't as deep as the men's. Those who follow the women's game closely say, actually, that narrative has been changing for a while. It's just that this year's upsets amplify it and confirm Confirm the March Madness branding the women are getting to use for the first time this year. Tom, and lastly, in the few seconds we have left, there has been some news about a former great player in the women's tournament, current WNBA star Brittany Griner, who has been detained in Russia since last month on drug smuggling allegations. What's the latest there? Yeah, the State Department said uh, a U.S. Embassy official in Moscow was given access to Griner this week for the first time, and the official reported she's in good condition. Obviously, that's good news um, about a scary situation. It was mm. reported last week Griner's detention is being extended to at least May 19th. Good news indeed. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman, thank you. You're welcome, Juana. This is NPR News. It's 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we'll speak with the president of the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. Her government is threatening to sue her over her support for Ukraine. Coming to WBUR City Space tomorrow night, singer Veronica Robles, founder of the first female mariachi band in Boston. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Enjoy the sunshine that's left because it's going to be sitting tomorrow out. Look for rain and even sleet late tonight. No accumulation expected, though. Overnight lows in the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, rain pretty much all day long. Heavy at times with a strong wind behind it. Highs only about 43 degrees. Friday, partly sunny and dry. Still on the windy side, warming to about 62 degrees. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, presenting cutting-edge works by a diverse array of artists in the exhibition, Prints from the Brandywine Workshop. Tickets at harvardartmuseums.org. And Boston Ballet's Dream State, three imaginative ballets, including a world premiere set to the Rolling Stones, live now through the 27th, bostonballet.org. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright has died. Albright was a central figure during the Clinton administration, first as ambassador to the United Nations and later as the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says Albright was a mentor and trailblazer who leaves behind a lasting legacy. The impact that uh, Secretary Albright, uh, Professor Albright, Dr. Albright, she's known as many titles uh, around here and, and, and in Washington and, and around the world, the impact that she has had on this building is felt 
every single day in just about every single corridor. Albright's family released a statement today saying she died of complications from cancer. She was 84 years old. It's the final day of questioning for President Biden's nominee to fill the upcoming vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson has faced a tough line of questioning this week from Senate Republicans over her past rulings on criminal cases. We see people like Chuck Grassley of Iowa, Republican, people like John Cornyn of Texas, uh, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina to some extent, being extremely tough on crime, criticizing Judge Jackson in some cases for granting compassionate release to people who were in prison at the start of a pandemic, when in fact many of those lawmakers voted for the First Step Act in 2018, which gave prisoners a new avenue to pursue compassionate release. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson report. Senate Democrats are hoping to wrap up the confirmation process by the middle of next month. Stocks traded lower today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 448 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A group of Republican state lawmakers and others are calling for the suspension of the state's 24-cent-a-gallon gasoline tax. They spoke at a press conference outside the statehouse today ahead of a possible vote on the proposal tomorrow. The measure has been tacked on to the Senate's budget bill. Supporters say suspending the tax would give drivers relief from the recent spike in gas prices. The House has already rejected the plan. Today's average price for regular unleaded gas in Massachusetts is $4.26 a gallon. Waltham is getting nearly $300,000 in federal funding to reduce pollution in the Charles River watershed caused by storm water runoff. The city plans to retrofit the Waltham Embassy parking lot near the river to make it more climate resilient. Executive Director of the Charles River Watershed Association, Emily Norton, says the project includes natural filtration systems. When it rains or it snows and the snow melts, that rainwater carries all of the junk that's on the roads, the, the trash, the phosphorus and the gasoline and the oil, the salt and sand from the roads. Everything goes straight into the river, untreated. Woburn is getting nearly the same amount for a climate resiliency project in that city. The governor of Rhode Island is pushing his plan for more offshore wind power. Governor Dan McKee is looking for an additional 660 megawatts of offshore power, enough to power 340,000 homes. He claims the plan will further position Rhode Island as the North American hub for the offshore wind industry. He was expected to lobby lawmakers and environmental agency officials today for their support. And MIT is offering a free math program for exceptional 9th to 11th grade students in Ukraine. It's called Yulia's Dream, and it's in memory of a 21-year-old math scholar who was killed in Ukraine following Russia's invasion. The students will meet online in small groups weekly and work on math research projects or study advanced math beyond high school curriculum under the guidance of tutors at the MIT Math Department. In the forecast, got rain moving in tonight, maybe some sleet as well. Overnight lows in the mid-30s, and for tomorrow, rain pretty much all day long. Some of it should be pretty heavy with highs about 43 degrees. Friday, partly sunny, still on the windy side, but warming to about 62. 43 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all of their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. From Capital One. 
offering their new class of premium travel card, Venture X, Capital One. What's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at WTGrantFoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Tbilisi, Georgia, where so many people we have met have told us they feel like the war in Ukraine is, is their war, their fight. Now, this is because Georgia has also fought Russia, most recently in 2008, when Russia attacked this small country on the southeast edge of Europe. Polls show that people here want their leaders to do more, to stand with Ukraine, to support Ukraine, and their president, Salome Zorabishvili, agrees, which has actually landed her in quite a bit of trouble. We're going to ask her about that. We're headed to her residence to meet her. The presidential palace is all lit up at night, Georgian and Ukrainian flags side by side, framing the front steps. Inside, we're shown to her office. Hi, Mary Louise Kelly, NPR. Very nice to meet you. We sit and note that tomorrow will mark one month since the invasion. And I ask President Zorbichvili her impression of how it's going. Uh, I think the first surprise is probably for the Russian leadership, for Vladimir Putin himself, who probably uh, did not think that it would last uh, that long, that was expecting something very different. Uh, and uh, in fact, he has uh, gotten a completely different picture. Uh, he has uh, really united the Ukrainian population in a way that uh, probably didn't expect. He has united Europeans in a way he didn't expect. Uh, and he has not been able, uh, by the show of force, by this aggression, to uh, obtain the rendition of the uh, Ukrainian uh, leadership. You have been speaking out very forcefully uh, about the need to stand in solidarity with Ukraine. Many people worldwide have been speaking up about the need to stand in solidarity with Ukraine. Not very many people are getting sued for that, but that is the prospect facing you. Uh, what is going on? Well, that's internal Georgian politics, which yes. is very difficult to, to explain outside. I'm not being sued. Uh, but this is about, just to give a little bit of background uh, to people listening in America who haven't followed every twist and turn of Georgian politics, um, right after the invasion, you traveled to Paris and Brussels to say, we need to stand with Ukraine. Um, and a couple of weeks later, the government here, the ruling party, said that trip was unauthorized and unconstitutional. Was it? Well, one can always uh, discuss the uh, interpretation. The Georgian constitution limits quite a lot the powers of the president, but at the same time, uh, it also includes uh, a duty for the president and for everyone to do the utmost and whatever is possible to facilitate and promote and accelerate the uh, European and Euro-Atlantic integration of Georgia. So it depends which one you look at. Uh, and again, I'm not very concerned. I was going to ask if this lawsuit, uh, the prospect of a lawsuit was an effort to silence you. Um, and it sounds well, like, A, you're not work. that concerned, <laughs> and B, the fact that I'm asking you about it in a nationally broadcast interview suggests that if that was the effort, it didn't work. No, it didn't work, and it doesn't work, and I'm giving... Uh, very many interviews, because I think it's very important at this stage uh, that uh, Georgia be on the map 
uh, for two reasons. One is that we should have the whole attention because clearly there are also uh, risks for Georgia, although not immediate, I would say. Uh, but we are in a place, in, geostrategically, in a place where, which is under constant, uh, and you have been seeing that under constant pressure uh, from Russia, uh, but also uh, on the positive side, because there are these new windows of opportunities that are opening up, and we are going to live in a different world. I think it's important that Georgia be present to seize uh, all the opportunities uh, that will be uh, possible. Explain why not every political leader in Georgia might be so outspoken. Why why some might be wary of antagonizing well, Russia? I think, I think it's a question of uh, maybe personality also. Uh, clearly but I mean the, the central dilemma for Georgia, which is the risk of antagonizing a much yeah, bigger neighbor. And I do not disagree. I mean, there there is a question of presentation also. Uh, I do not fundamentally disagree with the fact that being in Georgia, being a country that is occupied, and you have seen how close this is to the to the capital, that uh, we uh, have to be more cautious uh, in our statements and our uh, positions than, let's say, the Baltic states uh, that are now covered by Article 5 of NATO. So uh, we are in this dilemma of uh, not confronting uh, uh, Russia, not provoking at least uh, Russian reactions, but at the same time keeping uh, our principles, which is uh, solidarity with Ukraine, uh, which is our closeness with European Union and uh, NATO. But it's interesting hearing you talk about this moment as an opportunity for Georgia. I mean, it's an awful moment, obviously. Nobody wants to see yeah, the suffering. Nobody's, uh, we're seeing in Ukraine. But what is the opportunity you see for your country in this moment? Well, Ukraine has opened, uh, in fact, a window of opportunity uh, with the European Union in the most visible manner. Uh, and in fact, Ukraine has presented the first its candidature to the, uh, to the European Union, which was not expected in the uh, near future, uh, followed by Moldova and Georgia. Um, you just applied this month to yes, join the EU. Mm -hmm. Right after uh, Ukraine. And there is a serious rethinking of uh, what should be the treatment reserved to these countries uh, that are so close, uh, that are uh, in terms of security under uh, serious uh, pressure. Uh, but that will be the, the case for after the war, this discussion, and that's where everybody has to be ready. Um, and it means that we'll have to do our part of the work, of course, of uh, the reforms that will still be necessary. It's not a question of uh, the door being open without any uh, demands and uh, uh, any uh, objectives for right. us to be met. But it sounds like you're saying events in Ukraine totally not within your control, but one way or the other, they're going to very much alter the course of events here in Georgia, in the country. I think they're going to alter the course of events for everyone. Uh, nobody will be the same after this war, uh, whenever that will be, uh, and whatever the circumstances of the end of the war, uh, neither the United States nor Europe, uh, most of the countries will be changed after 
uh, this war. Uh, we all know that there will be economic consequences for everyone, uh, and the decisions that are going to be made afterwards will also uh, affect uh, all the countries in different manners. Salome Zorbishvili is the president of Georgia. Madam President, thank you. Thank you very much. Considered from NPR News. In the West, the condemnation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been swift and unequivocal. Many African states, on the other hand, have been reluctant to take sides in the conflict. NPR's Ader Peralta explores why. The day before Russia attacked Ukraine, one of Sudan's military rulers was in Russia shaking hands with the foreign minister. General Mohamed Hemeti Dagalo dangled the prospect of a Russian naval base in the Red Sea, rekindling the geopolitical talk of the Cold War. But Khaloud Hayir, a political analyst at Inside Strategy Partners, a Sudanese think tank, was worried about the fragile pro-democracy movement in Sudan. I think Russia's involvement in Sudan is bad because of what happens inside Sudan and what it means for people in Sudan, not what it means for the geopolitics. Sudan has very close relations with Russia, where it gets weapons and mercenaries. And right now, the generals running Sudan are focused on a pro-democracy uprising threatening their rule. Siding with Russia allows them to sort of upend some of the norms that they felt they've nominally had to adhere to. But shortly after that visit to Russia, the generals created some distance from Russia. Khair thinks the generals were worried that Russia might run short of the money and firepower the Sudanese generals need to stay in power. What does the regime get out of Russia if Russia is going to be cash-strapped, unable to do business, and wheat supplies are going to dwindle because of the war? That then becomes the question. Abdi Rashid, an analyst at the Kenyan-based Sahan think tank, says this type of calculus is playing out across the continent. He says this would seem like a perfect time for Russia to find allies in Africa. When the Cold War ended, liberalism was ascendant here. But now, it's different. There is definitely a growing anti-democratic, or let's say uh, an illiberal kind of wind which is blowing across Africa. But Rashid says at the moment, that old Cold War binary doesn't hold sway. African countries have plenty of other strongmen to deal with. Somalia could look to Turkey, Zimbabwe, to China, Sudan, to the Emirates. It will be difficult, I think, to wage the kind of geopolitical contest as we saw during the Cold War. To be sure, the old ideological arguments, socialism versus capitalism, are cropping up once more. Chiro Chachenere is a professor at the Institute of Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg. But he says even that's complicated because Russia is not socialist. And he says Putin is an imperialist. There is no better imperialism. Imperialism is imperialism. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. 
African countries aren't in favor of the invasion. Instead, they're weary of taking sides. In South Africa, first came condemnation against Russia, then reminders that the Soviet Union helped South Africans fight against white minority rule. Nieta says all he hopes is that African leaders remember that when East fought West during the Cold War, the Global South got pulled into actual wars. He uses an African proverb. Where there is a fight of elephants, it is normally the grass that suffers. He hopes African leaders pause. He hopes their countries don't get trampled. Ida Pralta, NPR News, Cape Town, South Africa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. You wouldn't know it by looking outside, but we've got some sloppy weather on the way tonight. Look for rain and sleet after midnight. Temperatures are around the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, rain pretty much all day long. Should be breezy with highs about 43. Rain should clear out on Friday, partly sunny with highs in the low 60s. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe, presenting children's book author Scott Magoon in a live event on Monday, March 28th, discussing the first book in his new middle-grade graphic novel series, The Extincts, an environmental exploration about extinct animals, climate change, and what kids can do to help. More at anunlikelystory.com. Red Sox lost to the Minnesota Twins in spring training play today, 10-4. to A familiar face is on his way back to the Patriots' defense. ESPN's Mike Reese reports cornerback Malcolm Butler will return to New England on a two-year free agent deal. Butler went from undrafted rookie to pro bowler during his earlier stint with the Patriots. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Bowery, presenting Two Cellos, The Dedicated Tour, with special guest Matt Simons on March 30th at Aganis Arena. Ticket info at Ticketmaster.com. Point 32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. And the Mass Art Auction, bidding is open on 325 works. Visit the exhibition in person and bid online. Learn more at massartauction.org. The news never sleeps, and we don't either. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. Our team is up all night, so we can tell you what happened while you were sleeping. Plus, we'll have interviews with local newsmakers and those hidden gems, the stories that bring a smile to your face. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Sailor Moon premiered in Japan 30 years ago this month. Sailor Moon is the magical alter ego of 14-year-old Usagi Tsukino. In the English version, her name is Serena. Now, Usagi lives a pretty normal schoolgirl life until she meets a talking cat 
who helps her unlock her magic powers. and tasks her with fighting evil supernatural forces with the rest of the Sailor Scouts. Brianna Lawrence is fandom editor at The Mary Sue and a longtime fan of the show. I started by asking her about her favorite Sailor Moon character, and she told me that when she was a kid, it was Sailor Jupiter. But as she's grown up, that's changed. Now I'm like, Sailor Moon's my favorite because... <laughs> Because she like she's the hero, but also she's like I deserve to eat cake every now and then if I feel like it because I'm saving the world all the time and I deserve this break. And one of Sailor Moon's personality traits, right, is that she cries a lot. I, I want to go home now. And you wrote that her crying that it used to annoy you. What was frustrating about it then? I think when I was younger, it annoyed me because I was projecting what other people would say. What do you think you're doing, Sailor Moon? You have to fight back. And so I was like, yeah, why are you complaining? You're supposed to save the world. You're supposed to do this. And then, like, I got older and I got tired. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, why do I Why do I have to push myself to the breaking point to get things done? Why can't I, like, take my time? I actually am working on a book series about magical girls. And so I rewatched Sailor Moon while I was writing it. And I was like, oh my God, I understand why she's crying. This is this is upsetting to go through. Like you're you're a 14-year-old. There's a cat that tells you that you have to save the world. The cat doesn't really give you that many details. Throw your tiara at her and yell, Moon Tiara action! But why would I want to do that? What's gonna happen? Just hurry up and do it! Your first fight is your best friend's mom, and she just kind of crumbles on the ground, and she doesn't know what to do, and Tuxedo Mask shows up, and he's like, Sailor Moon, you have to remember that crying isn't going to solve any of your problems. Yeah, maybe not, but I can't help it. <laughs> and the crying is so loud that it creates like a supersonic wave. And so the monster's distracted and she's able to actually use her tiara attack and finish off the monster. Moon tiara! Action! You and I both watched the show back in the 90s and it is just really striking to me that even now, years removed, there is this new generation of fans who are coming up and enjoying this show. You can go to the mall, which automatically makes me feel quite old, and you're going to see Sailor Moon merchandise at stores. What do you think it is about Usagi, the rest of the Sailor Scouts, that keeps getting people drawn into this show? I think it's a couple of things. Like, one, when we were watching it in the 90s, we got, like, the edited version. So partially, I think we're making up for lost time because... Now we're getting the like actual, here's the actual episodes unedited. Here's the actual, you know, queer content that wasn't in Sailor Moon. Here it is now. And then the other part is just, for me personally, the staying power is the message for me changed when I got older. You know, kids are pushed hard. And when you're in the middle of being pushed, you don't see what you're doing to other people. So as an adult, I look back and I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I'm really sorry. Like, Sailor Moon was right this whole time. She should be able to go to the arcade and crush on the boy and then 
take a bath and relax. I want to ask you about something you brought up about the show. You know, if a person has only ever watched the English dubs of this show, they may not know that Sailor Moon, Sailor Neptune, and Sailor Uranus were not cousins. They mm-hmm. were a lesbian couple. And this is a show that has a really big queer fan base. Why do you think Sailor Moon has resonated so much among queer people? I think for me personally, it resonated because it was censored. And I'm like, oh, more queer content that we're not getting. And I came out when I was 18. And I have been with my wife since I came out at 18. We've been together for 20 years. So um, I remember we went to tell her parents and their response was like, okay, but you don't have to talk about it with anybody else. Like you could just keep it to yourself. You don't have to say anything. And I think that's why I was like, it resonated with me so much because it got locked away for so long. And, and people thought that was necessary to do to like protect the children or whatever. And when I finally saw what the content was, I, I was just like, God, this is what they censored. This is what they were worried about. Because it's all, it's just people being themselves. Uranus and Neptune just hang out together. <laughs> they don't even like kiss or anything. They just like hold hands or talk to each other. It was such like a relaxed thing that we got robbed of. <laughs> There's no reason to go back to how it was 30 years ago. We can actually have this now. And so anytime someone's like, upset about oh this thing might have like a queer thing in it and it's like really are you gonna go back to like when you turned them into cousins really is that the hill you want to die on (laughs) and it's like no you shouldn't we're supposed to be progressing further than what you guys were doing when we were children you know it just strikes me now that the cultural landscape and the media that we all have access to looks so different than what you were consuming in the 90s when the show first came out 30 years ago Do you ever hear from young people who are into this show? Because, I mean, I think, like, it's very nostalgic for us, but it's, like, very much of today for them, perhaps. I think it's, like, this sense of, like, validation and freedom that they feel. Like, seeing characters learn to love themselves and be themselves throughout the show. And they're also kind of, like, unapologetically gay. (laughs) Like... I think that's the big impact it has because with Uranus and Neptune, there's no like episode explaining, you know, why they're gay. It's just like, no, they just are. People felt like this in 1992. (laughs) Like, like in the 90s, people were writing stories like this. I mean, yeah, it was censored, but the writing still happened. It's not new. So now when younger fans are coming out, they're like, oh, there's stuff I can show. It's like Sailor Moon. It's like all these other things that have come out. And it's like, oh, it's just, I'm right there. And like this media that's present today and was present back in the day. We've been here the whole time. Brianna Lawrence, fandom editor at The Mary Sue. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, seeing how cancer grows by hijacking the body's oxygen-sensing system. Learn more at DanaFarber.org stories. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, 
Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's been a pretty nice day, but look for a rainy, messy night overnight tonight. Sleet, but no real accumulation, though. Overnight lows in the mid-30s. And for tomorrow, we should have wet weather pretty much all day long. Some strong winds beyond heavy rain. Highs just about 43 degrees. Then for Friday, partly sunny and dry. Still on the windy side, should warm to about 62 degrees. In sports, Minnesota Twins beat the Red Sox in spring training play today. Minnesota 10, Red Sox 4. 43 degrees now in Boston at 459. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Moderna says a pediatric version of its COVID-19 vaccine appears to be safe and effective, even for kids under five. Scientists are looking at the research. I would say these are promising results. It's not a home run because it doesn't eliminate most infections, but it's promising. This is All Things Considered. story coming up. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson finishes her testimony in the Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearings for her nomination to the Supreme Court. And we'll hear from a married couple in Ukraine who once lived in Swamsgut. They're now in Kiev and sticking out the war to do what they can for their homeland. Yesterday I went and donated blood and I carried groceries for the neighbors as well because they were scared to leave the apartment. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The nation's first female Secretary of State has died. Clinton administration top diplomat Madeleine Albright was 84. The cause was cancer. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says Secretary Albright made a lasting impact on the agency, noting that many current top officials saw her as a mentor. She was a trailblazer um, as the first female uh, Secretary of State and quite literally open doors uh, for a large uh, element of our of our workforce. Madeleine Albright was born in Prague and arrived in the U.S. in 1948 as a refugee. She served as ambassador to the United Nations before becoming President Clinton's Secretary of State, known for her advocacy for democracy and human rights. She taught at Georgetown University and has written several books about her life and foreign policy. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is telling the Senate Judiciary Committee that if confirmed to the Supreme Court, she would recuse herself from a high-profile affirmative action case due to her ties with Harvard University. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more from today's confirmation hearings. Jackson, who had become the first black woman on the Supreme Court if confirmed, described why she thinks a diverse judicial branch is essential. It lends confidence that the rulings that the judge that that the court is uh, handing down are fair and just that 
everything has been considered, that no one is being excluded because of a characteristic like race or gender or anything else. Jackson said unlike some judges who have a judicial philosophy tied to legal theory, her own philosophy comes from experience on the bench. She said in each case, she sets aside her personal views to consider from an impartial standpoint and that she understands her role is a limited one. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, Washington. Russian President Vladimir Putin will soon require, quote, unfriendly customers of Russian natural gas exports to pay only in rubles. NPR's Charles Maines reports. Putin announced the new policy in a televised government meeting aimed at countering Western sanctions. The Russian leader said trust in the dollar and euro had been compromised after the West illegitimately froze Russian assets abroad. Putin said Moscow will now insist any European and American purchasers of Russian natural gas transfer payments in rubles. The move seemed aimed at propping up the Russian currency, which gained on the dollar and euro with the news. Natural gas prices also went up as uncertainty lingered over how existing foreign currency contracts with Russian gas producers could be amended without arbitration and delays. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. Wall Street, the Dow fell 448 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Cambridge-based Moderna says its vaccine works in babies, toddlers, and preschoolers. The company says it's going to be asking regulators in both the U.S. and European Union for authorization for two small doses for children under age six. Moderna President Stephen Hoag says the vaccine will protect young children from the worst effects of the virus. Unfortunately, hospitals, pediatric hospitals, did see a lot of COVID-19 this, this last winter. And the good news is we, we have every reason to believe the vaccine will prevent all of those outcomes or most of those outcomes. If regulators agree with Moderna, they could authorize the use of the vaccine for children under six by this summer. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu announced the creation of a new LGBTQ plus advancement office this morning. The office will connect individuals in Boston's queer community to a variety of services and resources. It will also help develop policies to advance the rights of the city's LGBTQ plus residents. Mayor Wu says one of the office's first priorities is to address the disproportionate discrimination and violence directed at brown and black members of the trans community. Boston's LGBTQ plus community deserves an office that affirms and uplifts and defends the safety of all, the opportunities and the dreams of all. The city is now looking for an executive director to lead the office. The state is offering companies grants of $4,000 per employee to cover training costs and signing bonuses. It's part of a new initiative by the Baker administration to try to steer workers toward new jobs in new fields. There are about 180,000 people in the state out of work as some companies struggle to fill openings. Companies are capped at $400,000 in grants. And researchers say they have found what they believe is the wreck of a nearly 200-year-old whaling ship from Massachusetts, and they have found it in the Gulf of Mexico. A National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration exploration has documented what's believed to be the wreck of the whaler industry about 70 miles from the mouth of the Mississippi River. The ship sank in a storm in 1836. The Gulf was a rich hunting ground, but many mixed-race whaling crews from the north avoided it because southern ports carried the risk of enslavement for some crew members. 41 degrees in the Boston area. Clouds collect tonight and less loose with rain. Some sleet forming as well overnight, down around 36. Tomorrow highs around 43 degrees with rain galore. 41 degrees now in Boston at 5.06.
WBUR supporters include Capital One, offering their new class of premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson faced another day of questions during her confirmation hearing for the U.S. Supreme Court. And things got a little heated today, so we'll warn you that there may be some profanity ahead in the conversation we're about to have with NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg and senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Good to have you both here. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Before we get to today's hearing, Nina, could you just briefly bring us up to speed on Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been hospitalized since last Friday night? Well, we really don't know anything more than we were told initially. He has an infection and is being treated with intravenous drugs. But initially, the court's press office said that he was expected to be discharged on Monday or Tuesday. And now it's Wednesday, so he's been there five days, suggesting that perhaps there's something fairly serious going on. And that underlines the importance of these hearings. And let's talk about what happened at these hearings today. Judge Jackson's sentencing record for child pornography cases once again became a focal point of questions from some Republican senators. That's exactly right. Uh, Judge Jackson again got hammered over a handful of child pornography cases in which she sentenced defendants to less time than recommended by prosecutors or that would have been required under the sentencing guidelines or were at the low end. Now, this record, we should note, is at this, the same as some 70 to 80 percent of other judges. And that's because when the law was written in 2003, almost all pornography was traded by mail. And one of the sentencing enhancements was based on the amount of pornography purchased or distributed by mail. Today, of course, on the Internet, and that's how everybody does this, one click can transmit thousands of images. So most judges don't necessarily consider one or two or three clicks as an aggravating factor. But some Republicans see things differently, like Lindsey Graham. I think the best way to deter people from getting on a computer and viewing thousands and hundreds and over time, maybe millions, the population as a whole, of children being exploited and abused every time somebody clicks on is to put their ass in jail, not supervise their computer usage. So you can see the kind of rhetoric that was on display from Graham as well as Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton. Rhetoric and also tone. Domenico, what was your takeaway from the Republicans on the committee? Yeah, I mean, overall, Republicans on the committee uh, really were in the business of airing a lot of grievances and giving us kind of a healthy dose of some midterm messaging. You know, they pledged to treat Judge Jackson respectfully from a personal standpoint, not bring in a lot of these outside affiliations, which they're upset Democrats have done to past nominees. That was mostly true, with the notable exception of Senator Cruz, as Nina mentioned. You know, he brought up her sitting on the board of the Georgetown Day School here in Washington, elite school. Uh, and that turned into really a discussion about critical race theory, how children are taught about racism, uh, which, as we know, has been a huge issue for Republicans in political campaigns over the past year or so. Uh, and at one point during the hearing, the Republican National Committee even sent out an image of Judge Jackson with her initials, KBJ, crossed out and replaced with CRT. But I have to say the biggest area where Jackson obviously was on defense over these last three days uh, including this afternoon again, was on sentences that she meted out, as Nina had mentioned. Uh, the implication is that she's lenient and she's soft on crime, which also has been a huge part of the Republican messaging heading into this election year midterms. 
do you think this is all going to mean she won't get any Republican votes? Well, you know, look, it was contentious. I'm not sure if anybody on the committee will vote for her. We'll see. Uh, the White House is still hopeful that some Republicans could cross over. I mean, think about people like Mitt Romney of Utah, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine. Murkowski and Collins, we should say, voted for her to her current position. And so did Lindsey Graham, by the way. Uh, but he seems more doubtful this time since he was among the most animated questioners, as you could hear there, angry at Democrats' conduct in past confirmation hearings. Um, overall, though, what matters is whether Democrats stick to Together since they narrowly control the Senate. And really, her calm and steady performance likely helped with that. You know, Republicans know they can't stop her nomination. So they were going to make sure that with all the attention and TV time that they're being given to these hearings, uh, that they were going to get in their political points, stress their political values, and try and make Democrats as uncomfortable as possible. Nina, you've covered confirmation hearings for every justice on the court and then some. How is Judge Jackson doing? She did fine. Uh, she wasn't, you know, the best nominee ever. That would go to Chief Justice Roberts, but she did fine. And Domenico, <laughs> what do you think all of this tells us about the tenor of future hearings? Well, look, it's been bitter on this confirmation uh, hearing. Uh, you can hear it from Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, who criticized the tone of the questions being posed by Senator Graham to Judge Jackson. Let's take a listen to that. I don't know what the motivation might be, uh, what political motivation it is. But to see the badgering of this woman uh, as she's trying to testify, I thought was outrageous. It makes you wonder whether a president will ever be able to get through a nominee to the court when the opposite party holds the chamber. We haven't seen that before. We got a glimpse of it when uh, President Obama, former President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the court and Republican leader Mitch McConnell didn't even give Garland a hearing. The job of the Senate is to advise and consent. But right now, with tensions being what they are, we really have a broken system in the Senate. It's unclear what's going to happen in the future with that. Nina, what are your takeaways from the hearing so far? Well, you know, we had an enormous amount of posturing and grievances from senators, uh, Republican senators this week, and some Democrats too, I suppose. And occasionally there was some honest reflection. To my surprise, Republican Senator Ben Sass seemed to disassociate himself from some of the questioning of Judge Jackson on his, on his side by urging the Supreme Court not to allow cameras in the court chamber. Take a listen. For intellectual discourse, it is not a friend. Um, and I think we should recognize that the jackassery we often see around here um, is partly because of people mugging for short-term uh, camera opportunities. And there's the vulgarity we <laughs> promised you in the intro. NPR's <laughs> Nina Totenberg and Domenico Montanaro. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you. There is potentially some very good news today for parents of young kids who have been anxious to get their children vaccinated. Moderna says a pediatric version of its COVID-19 vaccine appears to be safe and effective. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. Hey, Rob. Hey there. All right, Rob. So who exactly would this vaccine be for? Yeah, so Moderna has been testing lower dose versions of its vaccine for kids of all ages, but it's parents of kids younger than age five who might be most excited about this. That's because anyone age five and older can already get the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but Pfizer's vaccine hasn't really worked so far for kids this age. So many parents have been frustrated, especially now that everyone is taking off their masks. But Moderna announced today that a pediatric version of its vaccine appears to be safe and can protect kids ages as young as six months old. That is potentially a big deal. Rob, how strong is the evidence here? 
Yes, a very good question. Unfortunately, all we really know about this so far is what Moderna put out in a news release this morning. First of all, Moderna says doctors didn't see any signs of any serious side effects when they gave thousands of kids two doses of the company's vaccine at one quarter the dose that adults get. And the company says this low-dose formulation looks like it was high enough to stimulate the immune system just as well as the adult version. Moderna says it generated levels of neutralizing antibodies equivalent to what protects adults. I talked about this with Dr. Yvonne Moldonado. She's a Stanford pediatrician who advises the American Academy of Pediatrics. She says this is really good news for lots of parents. It's been difficult and most heartbreaking, I think, are the children who are immunocompromised, who have other underlying conditions, who can't be vaccinated yet. And so it will be a welcome opportunity for families to vaccinate their young children as they have been able to do for their older kids. But, you know, there are still lots of questions about all this. What sorts of questions are there? Well, you know, Moderna also says the vaccine was only about 40% effective against the Omicron variant in terms of protecting the kids against catching the virus and getting mildly or moderately ill. That's not unexpected since the adult vaccine doesn't work as well against Omicron either, but it's not great. So the company says it plans to test a third dose, a booster, to see if that helps. And while the immune response should be enough to do the most important thing, you know, keep kids from getting seriously ill, that hasn't actually been proven yet. And even if it does, you know, no one knows really how long that protection might last. I talked about this with Dr. Jesse Goodman. He's a former top FDA scientist who's now at Georgetown University. I would say these are promising results. It's not a home run because it doesn't eliminate most infections, uh, but it's promising. Goodman also says Moderna's study wasn't big enough to totally rule out any side effects, you know, like a rare heart inflammation that sometimes occurs among younger men. All right, Rob, so where do we go from here? What happens next? Moderna plans to formally ask the FDA for emergency authorization within weeks. The FDA would probably convene outside advisors to put the company's case under a microscope and decide whether or not to recommend a go-ahead. If it does, the CDC would then weigh in. All that could happen pretty fast, and Pfizer is expected to announce the results of a third dose of its pediatric vaccine soon, too. But these shots have to be given three or four weeks apart and then probably followed by a third shot months later. So it probably take time to get all these little ones fully vaccinated. And the big question is, how much of a demand will there really be at this point? Rob, in the few seconds we have left, what do we know about that? You know, many parents clearly can't wait to vaccinate their kids, but it's already been hard to convince most to vaccinate their older kids. Less than a third have done it. And with the Omicron surge waning, there may be even less a sense of urgency for many, especially since kids don't tend to get that sick. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein, thank you. Sure thing. One month into the war in Ukraine, we take stock. The refugee crisis, how troops are faring, support for Ukraine's military. Tune in to Morning Edition tomorrow to hear the assessment. Listen live on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the Taliban had promised that Afghan girls could return to school after months of being locked out. But for girls above sixth grade, it's apparently not going to happen. That story is coming up.
Governor Charlie Baker may be looking to sell the Heinz Convention Center in Boston. The Boston Globe reports civic leaders in the Back Bay say they expect the governor to propose the idea when he presents his economic development package to lawmakers. The governor first proposed the sale in 2019 as a way to pay for an expansion of the Boston Convention Exhibition Center in South Boston. Price of oil is rising, and today the value of the Dow stocks fell. The Dow was down more than one and a quarter percent, 449 points, to finish at 34,359. S&P and Nasdaq also lost about the same, one and a quarter percent. The S&P ended down at 44.56. The Nasdaq settled at 13,923. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast, working to build and evolve a reliable network to keep customers connected. Learn more at comcast.com network. Got messy weather on the way tonight. Rain, sleet after midnight, lows about 36. Tomorrow, a rainy day, breezy with highs about 43. And then Friday could have partly sunny skies. Temperatures in the low 60s, 41 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all of their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is gathering evidence of war crimes in Ukraine and is promising to hold Russia to account. What's more, he says the U.S. government has already assessed that, quote, members of Russian forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. NPR's Michelle Kellerman joins us with more. Hi, Michelle. Hi there, Ari. Tell us more about these U.S. allegations. So the ambassador at large for global criminal justice, Beth Van Skok, says her office has been going over intelligence reports and public information, and they've concluded that Russian forces have carried out war crimes. She didn't really give a lot of examples, though she did mention, for instance, the bombing of a maternity hospital in Mariupol. And she said it's really important to document all of this. Take a listen. It's incredibly important to shed a light on what's happening within Ukraine so that the people of Ukraine understand that the world knows what they are suffering and that they're doing their suffering at the hands of um, an aggressive war that was launched unprovoked by Russia. It's also extremely important to continue to document what's happening on the ground to preserve that information as potential evidence for future accountability purposes. So in other words, the U.S. is documenting these crimes now for war crimes trials in the future. Trials where? Um, Where would a case like this be heard? U.S. officials say they're looking at all options. I mean, it could be Ukrainian courts. It could be courts in European countries that have universal jurisdiction. And perhaps the International Criminal Court. The U.S. is not a 
part of the ICC. In fact, the Trump administration was so opposed to it that it imposed sanctions on the court. But uh, the Biden administration lifted those sanctions, and Van Skok seems to be keeping the door open for cooperating with the ICC in the case of Ukraine. Ukraine was a leading topic at the United Nations today, too, as was the legacy of former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who died today at age 84. Tell us about that. Right. So Albright was a former ambassador to the United Nations and really a towering figure in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, many diplomats were, um, you know, talking about her today on the floor of the General Assembly. The current ambassador, U.S. Um, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, called Madeleine Albright a longtime mentor and friend. She was a trailblazer and a luminary, and she was the first woman to serve as Secretary of State. She left an indelible mark on the world and on the United Nations. Our country and our United Nations are stronger for her service. And Thomas Greenfield said Albright's personal story really resonates with what's happening in Ukraine. Um, Madeleine Albright was born in Prague and came to the U.S. as a refugee, uh, as a young refugee, and um, that really shaped her outlook. And can you connect that to today's designation about war crimes in Ukraine? I mean, Albright was a forceful voice on these sorts of issues. When she was in the Clinton administration, she urged the president to get more involved to stop Serbian atrocities in Bosnia-Herzegovina. That's right, Ari. And, uh, you know, our colleague um, Tom Jelton did a report back in 1996 when Albright was ambassador to the U.N. and visiting a mass grave in Bosnia. I just want you to take a listen. Um, but just a warning, her, her description was really graphic. I have uh, spent some time on farms, and I'm actually used to seeing bones, but I have never stood uh, so close to human bones, vertebrae pieces of cranium and then a body that uh, actually was, is decomposing. It's the most disgusting and horrifying sight for another human being to see. Very powerful words indeed. You know, she's written a lot of books and she's taught at Georgetown University. She was a real advocate for democracy and human rights. NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thank you. Thank you. Afghan girls arrived to school today in tidy uniforms and lugging giant school bags. The Taliban, who seized power in August, had said the girls could return to secondary school after being locked out for months. But just as the girls turned up, they were sent home. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. Sakina Jaffrey says she turned up at school today at 8 a.m. sharp. She's 18 years old and has been waiting for seven months to return to school. She, like tens of thousands of high school-age girls across Afghanistan, were ordered to stay home when the Taliban swept to power. The Taliban said it was for technical reasons. This week, they promised they could come back. That promise was quickly dashed. She speaks to NPR's producer in Kabul, Fazal Minallah Kazizai. Jafri says Taliban officials arrived and told them that girls over grade six weren't allowed to study. She says, some of my classmates began weeping. We were so excited to return and now we don't know what will happen to us. That echoed another schoolgirl who spoke to Afghan news outlet Tolo. <laughs> Later, she says, what is our crime? That we're girls? 
Western countries have made girls returning to school a key issue to resume more aid to the cash-strapped Afghan government. They largely cut off aid after the US withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban seized power. For others, it's a demand before they can consider recognising the Taliban's rule. But the abrupt change of plans highlights what analysts say is the debate that Taliban officials have been having among themselves over whether girls should attend high school at all. Although Islam encourages men and women to be educated, most Taliban adhere to deeply conservative Pashto norms that expect teenage girls to stay home as brides. Others seem to disapprove of the uniform that Afghan teenage girls currently wear, loose clothing and a headscarf. One Taliban spokesman said the delay was so they could decide on a dress code for all high school girls. That echoed what NPR heard from one school teacher. She requested anonymity because she doesn't want to anger Taliban officials. And she says as soon as the girls came into class, the principal rushed in and said, Don't come in here until we've got official permission. And when you come back, you'll have to wear a black face veil, a black chador and black glasses. That teacher says her students were distressed. They argued they were already wearing modest clothing. One of them said, we're ready to wear burqas, but please let us stay. But we told them they had to leave. The news from Afghanistan this morning is absolutely devastating. Heather Barr of Human Rights Watch focuses on women's rights in Afghanistan. She says this echoes when the Taliban were last in power in the 1990s and prevented girls from school. They said all along that it was a temporary situation with girls being denied education and that they would allow girls to study and women to work once conditions were right. But that moment never arrived. And now the concern is that moment when conditions are right when the Taliban leadership can agree on girls' education, that moment might never arrive. Dia Hadid, NPR News. The NCAA March Madness College Basketball Tournament kicked off last week, and for the first time, players are allowed to make endorsement deals. But there are concerns that student-athletes aren't being protected. A lot of these athletes are being taken advantage of. They don't know what they're signing. They're signing away exclusive rights to their image. Big money endorsements and college athletes today on NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. High winds tonight, rain, even sleet, lows about 36. What weather lasts through the day tomorrow? Some strong rain at times, a raw wind, highs about 43. Then for Friday, partly sunny and milder, highs near 62. The Mount Washington Valley Chamber of Commerce in New Hampshire is asking visitors to sign a pledge to, quote, respect and protect the area. The pledge asks tourists to abide by pandemic guidelines, properly dispose of trash, and not disturb wildlife. The move is targeted at travelers in the last two years as interest in outdoors has grown during the pandemic. 41 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EF Gap Year, offering short-term summer programs abroad for students who want to get out and experience the world through hands-on learning. More at efgapyear.com. Thank you for this historic chance to join the highest court, to work with brilliant colleagues, to inspire future generations, and to ensure 
liberty, and justice for all. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The nation's first female Secretary of State has died. Madeleine Albright, who played a key role in shaping foreign policy during the Clinton administration, is being remembered as a trailblazer and a leading diplomat. During her career, Albright headed numerous foreign policy organizations, including the Albright Institute for Global Affairs at her alma mater, Wellesley College, where she participated in this forum in 2018. I loved foreign policy, there's no question. Wherever we went, I started an international relations club and made myself president of it. After her tenure in the Clinton administration, Albright went on to advise future presidents on foreign policy, as NPR's Ron Elving reports. She did come back in the Obama administration as a trusted voice, someone who was looked to for advice, for her knowledge of Europe, for her knowledge of international agreements, and for her knowledge of weaponry. She was somebody who was constantly talking about how the United States could use its enormous military power to leverage good events and good outcomes around the world. NPR's Ron Elving reporting. Confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson are continuing on Capitol Hill. In her final day of questioning, Jackson once again defended her record on the federal bench and pledged to rule on matters of law without any agendas. I think I've been the kind of judge who lives up to the oath in terms of being fair and impartial, um, ruling without fear or favor. Senate Democrats are aiming to wrap up the confirmation process by mid-April. At the close on Wall Street, the Dow was down 448 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There's new hope that the youngest Massachusetts residents could gain access to a COVID-19 vaccine in the coming months. Cambridge-based Moderna says it has data that show its small-dose vaccine for children under six years old is safe and effective. The company says it plans to ask for FDA emergency use authorization in a matter of weeks. WBUR's Jack Mitchell has more. Dr. Sabrina Asumu at Boston Medical Center says she was excited to take a look at Moderna's findings. She calls them encouraging, adding the caveat that the data will undergo further regulatory scrutiny. As the mother of a three-year-old, Asumu says this kind of step toward possible authorization brings relief to anxious parents. But she says that's not the only reason for urgency. It is true that children are less likely to get severe disease from COVID, but children do get COVID, children do get hospitalized from COVID, and children do die from COVID. Asumu says now is a good time for parents and guardians to check in with a medical professional if they have questions about vaccination. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jack Mitchell. The Speaker of the Massachusetts House is committing to reform mental and behavioral health care in the state. Speaker Ron Mariano said during a virtual forum today that mental health care has not gotten the attention it deserves. He says any legislation from the House will aim to build on legislation already under consideration in the Senate. Governor Charlie Baker is lobbying for his own bill that would require insurers to dramatically increase behavioral health spending. City of Worcester is going to be looking for a new city manager this spring. Edward Augustus, who's been manager for the last eight years is stepping down at the end of May. He says it's time to give somebody else a shot. 
I've you know thought that it was analogous to running a marathon. You know, each mayor or city manager runs their leg of the marathon, passes the baton, and the next person has the energy and the vision to kind of take it the next leg of the race. Augusta says he's proud of the city's steady population growth as well as the investments the city has made in schools and parks. The former New Hampshire high school employee convicted of recruiting her teenage lover to kill her husband has been denied a sentence reduction hearing. Pamela Smart was 22 years old and working as a high school media coordinator when she began a relationship with a 15-year-old. She was convicted of getting him to kill her husband, Gregory Smart, in 1990. The New Hampshire Council unanimously rejected her request for the hearing. 41 degrees in the Boston area. Look for high winds tonight, rain, even sleet, lows about 36 degrees. And then for tomorrow, wet weather all day long. A raw wind, highs about 43. For Friday, partly sunny, milder, near 62 degrees. 41 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. At least two tornadoes swept through the greater New Orleans area last night, causing significant damage, multiple injuries, and one reported death so far. Gulf States newsroom reporter Shalina Chutlani is in Araby, Louisiana, a suburb just across the city line from New Orleans' lower Ninth Ward. That area experienced some of the most severe damage. Shalina, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. First, describe where you are and what you've seen. Well, I'm in a part of Araby where it's residential, but there are also a lot of businesses here. Barber shops, local food stores. And the first thing I noticed walking around was that there were entire structures that were completely leveled to the ground. I'm seeing trees on tops of houses, down power lines that thankfully aren't live, windows blown out, debris and broken glass lighting the street. I'm also still seeing a lot of people walking around assessing the damage. I spoke to the pastor of one church, the True Vine Church, which I'm actually across from right now. It serves a predominantly Latino population, and unfortunately, the church was completely demolished. The pastor is David Pagan. We have like about 65, 75 people, and everybody called me day and night. And um, the only thing I can say, you know, we just pray, wait what happened. And if we have to rebuild, we have to rebuild. There were a lot of folks just sitting outside, waiting for insurance adjusters to stop by, waiting for volunteers to come and help them pick up debris, or, you know, they were at work themselves, sweeping away the damage. What are local officials saying about how extensive the damage is? The governor of Louisiana spoke this afternoon. Um, that's Governor John Bell Edwards. And he declared this situation a state of emergency so he could activate the National Guard. Um, He said the damage to homes and businesses is severe and devastating in some places, but it's also relatively concentrated in those areas. The death toll is holding up one person and eight people were hospitalized. So, you know, the loss of life right now is at a low point, but obviously there could be more damage in the cleanup and recovery phase. 
Um, when it comes to power, right now around 2,500 customers are without their power. But the governor doesn't expect that to last too long. In fact, I'm seeing right now that there's a lot of utility workers out here uh, that are working on those down power lines. And at this point, several hundred structures have been assessed as having damage, but that's probably a low estimate at this point. Are there any estimates yet of what it will take to recover and clean up from this? How long? How much money? Yeah, well, when it comes to how long it might take people to individually recover, it really depends on those insurance claims, you know, and whether people find the money to fix their homes. Um, one person, Annette Duggan, who was here on the street, told me she just fixed her roof four weeks ago. It was damaged in Hurricane Ida, which was a destructive Category 4 storm that hit Louisiana just late last August. And with this tornado, part of the roof got torn off <clears throat> again because a horse trailer hit her house. I'm kind of like still in shock right now. <laughs> I'm just kind of in a daze because we didn't sleep. We slept in the house last night because uh, we don't want to leave it yet. You know, and in the meantime, a lot of people, as they're waiting for those adjusters to come out and sort out their plans, there's also a lot of volunteers that are around here handing out food and water right. to people. And so there's a lot of um, community uh, activism happening. Gulf States Newsroom reporter Shalina Chetlani, thank you. Thank you. With gasoline prices now topping more than $4 a gallon, many drivers are looking for vehicles that will go further on a gallon of gas or vehicles that don't use gasoline at all. That is a shift from a year ago when gas-gobbling pickup trucks and SUVs accounted for more than three-quarters of all vehicles sold. Shoppers looking for more fuel efficiency might not find much to choose from, though, as NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Lori Sylvia needs a new car. Her 2008 Ford Explorer is showing its age, and filling its 22-gallon gas tank is a drain on her wallet. Sylvia likes the feel of the Explorer, though. It holds the tools and plants she needs as a landscaper, and when she's finished with work, she can take her stand-up paddleboard to the nearby beach in Rhode Island. I just like the feeling of something big and heavy, and it helps me feel safer to be up really high and surrounded by a good amount of metal. I come from a family of small women, and they've all driven enormous cars. Sylvia would like to buy a hybrid SUV that gets better gas mileage, but not at today's prices. Right now, I don't feel like I can afford one, even though I would like to. Zoe Wise has also been frustrated in her search for a car in Alaska. Right now, Wise and her husband are sharing a 16-year-old Mazda. He will drive me to work in the morning, drop me off, and then I'll drop him off at work after I get off work, which is kind of ridiculous, too, because with the cost of gas right now, we're going through a lot more gas because we're spending time driving each other to and from work. With gasoline in Anchorage this week selling for four sixty nine a gallon, Wise says she's giving more weight to her husband's desire for an electric car. I always thought, like, well, that's a little bit of a luxury. I don't know if that's something that we actually need to get. But now we're looking at it a little bit more seriously. A lot of car buyers are looking more seriously at fuel efficiency since Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed gas prices to a record high this month. Pat Ryan runs the car buying app Copilot, which allows him to track what car shoppers are looking for and what dealers are offering. You'd say we're seeing both sides of the dance between consumer and dealer. Right now, that dance is a little out of step. There's suddenly a lot more demand for electric cars, hybrids, and small gasoline-powered vehicles, but there aren't many available. 
Ryan says the price of used Teslas jumped $2,000 in a single week to $63,000. Used SUVs, on the other hand, have been marked down over $800 in the last month. They're the famous $100 to fill up kind of vehicles, right? I think dealers are feeling the pressure on those. They're worried about having these big gas guzzlers on the lot. Ryan says so far there hasn't been a similar discount on pickup trucks, which are still in high demand. Pete Swenson, who's senior vice president for a Minnesota chain of car dealerships, notes both pickups and SUVs get better gas mileage than they used to. But he says dealers are on the lookout for any big shift in what buyers want. You know, in previous times when gas spiked, people reacted quickly. I mean, I've never seen so many people trade out of their trucks and big SUVs for cars. And then when gas went back down, it seems like they switched back. Electric cars were all the buzz at the National Automobile Dealers Show in Las Vegas earlier this month, but supplies are limited. Prices are relatively high, and Swinson says a lot of would-be customers are still in wait-and-see mode. Marlene Dempster was looking to replace her old car last month when her neighbor got a new Tesla. She took one drive in her neighbor's car and ordered her own Tesla that same day. Oh, (laughs) it's amazing what those cars can do. The um, torque is amazing, and I just feel really good about not using petroleum. Dempster placed her order just before this month when gas prices in California soared to nearly $6 a gallon. She feels lucky she bought when she did. Since I ordered my Tesla, the down payments doubled and the price has gone up several thousand dollars. Dempster expects delivery of her new electric car in about two months. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom. How the world connects. President Biden has landed in Brussels ahead of a packed day of meetings aimed at presenting a united front in opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave a preview on the flight over on Air Force One. What we would like to hear is that the resolve and unity that we've seen for the past month will endure for as long as it takes. That's at a top line. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith is in Brussels and will be in the press pool tomorrow following the president as he meets with allies. Hey, Tam. Hi, Juana. Hey, can you just run us through all of these meetings that are on the president's packed schedule and also tell us about what he hopes to accomplish? Well, the president starts at NATO headquarters. This is a meeting with the 30 members, uh, and it's come together at the last minute, really, to focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This discussion will focus on defense. Individual members are supplying weapons and assistance to Ukraine as it defends itself against Russia. And the alliance together is fortifying countries on its eastern flank as a deterrence to further Russian aggression. Uh, Then Biden is meeting with the G7 leading economies. They're talking about sanctions on Russia. And then finally, he'll go to a European Council meeting, which will be more focused on the humanitarian needs of the Ukrainian people and refugees. And you can expect a flurry of announcements tomorrow about sanctions on Russia and aid to Ukraine. And finally, there will be a press conference.
All right. NATO is a military alliance, and you mentioned fortifying the eastern flank, countries like Poland. What else are these leaders going to be talking about? Well, they're going to announce more troop rotations on the southern edge of NATO's eastern flank. Um, And NATO leaders will be talking about a more long-term shift in its defense posture. Uh, Sullivan said they will also be running through various contingencies, like what if Russia launches a cyber attack on the U.S. or a NATO ally? What if Putin uses chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine or escalates that conflict in some other way? You know, heading into this conflict, analysts I've spoken to say Russia's Putin thought NATO was wobbly, but this war is at Europe's door and it has really brought focus. And President Biden arrives at this meeting bringing all the symbolism of an American president standing up and endorsing Article 5 of the NATO Charter. That is that an attack on one is an attack on all. Ian Lesser is with the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. based here in Brussels. Given the experience in the Trump years when there were questions about American reliability in NATO, and the European Union as an institution wasn't taken very seriously. This administration takes both institutions very seriously, and I think this is a tangible demonstration of that. Tam, what else can you tell us about these sanctions? Well, Jake Sullivan said there would be individual sanctions targeting political leaders and oligarchs. He didn't get into specifics, but there are reports that hundreds of members of the Russian Duma, its parliament, uh, will be slapped with sanctions that could freeze up their funds. But more broadly, he said G7 leaders are going to announce measures to crack down on sanctions evasion. Hagar Chamali used to work at the Treasury Department, and that is still her focus. She told me that if the sanctions announced tomorrow aren't blockbusters, even if they aren't blockbusters, the larger message is about projecting unity. When it comes to changing Putin's behavior, we have to remember that sanctions are just one prong of that strategy. And sanctions are not going to be the silver bullet to change Putin's behavior. It's the entire strategy that will. All right. That is that includes beefing up Ukraine's military, building military strength in Europe and moving Europe away from dependence on Russian oil and gas. That is NPR's White House correspondent Tamara Keith in Brussels. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Look for rain, even sleet late tonight. No accumulation expected, though. Overnight lows in the mid-30s. For tomorrow, rain pretty much all day long. Heavy at times, a strong wind. Highs only about 43. And for Friday, some relief. Partly sunny skies dry, still on the windy side, warming to about 62. 41 degrees now in the Boston area at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Deb Becker, Simone Rios, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Helen and Leon were born in Ukraine, married there, and had a child there. 
But in 1988, the couple fled Ukraine because anti-Semitism was rampant, and they are Jewish. That's when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. They were held back in their education and careers and ambitions, so they left, spent months in refugee camps, and eventually settled in Swampscott, Massachusetts. They raised their daughter there and became U.S. citizens. But 10 years ago this month, Helen and Leon returned to Ukraine. It had become a democracy. Anti-Semitism was no longer an issue. Leon is an investment banker in Ukraine. Helen is a writer and teaches English. She says she followed Leon back to the country for his work, although she puts it a different way, with a smile. I was dragged to Ukraine <laughs> because I married to Leon. And uh, uh, it's not like I wanted to. It was my choice or desire or adventure. But then uh, this time Ukraine grew on me. So it's kind of a second home. It means enough to her now that she's staying in the capital, Kiev, in the middle of a war. That's even though she and Leon could have returned to the U.S. and continued their work from here. We've agreed to use only their first names out of concern for their safety. And we ask them how they now answer a question that often seems so simple. How are they doing? I am answering the truth. We are all right. For many reasons, people do adjust to circumstances and our circumstances with electricity on and uh, running water, and we managed to get some groceries, which was the real hunting. And uh, first weekend when it was curfew for three days, we were actually out of food. So we were kind of panicking, but then we managed to get some. So we are kind of happy that it's livable conditions. Livable conditions, and do you feel safe right now because we know what's happening around Kiev? Kiev is a main target of the Russian forces. How safe do you feel, Leon? Uh, we feel relatively safe because even though Kiev is the main target of the Russian forces, we feel it's an unreachable target of Russian forces. And we got used to air raid sirens. So far, Kyiv is under some bombing, but not really active. So we are not panicking. I would not say not active. I would say not severe. If you could work remotely, both of you, um, why haven't you left yet? Because of the people, like my neighbors whom I helped. So I see people in need. So I feel really kind of... Um, puzzled why young people with no children left and they feel they kind of abandoned. It's their city, it's their land, it's their babushkas. Why I should help? And they're like uh, doing a lot of stuff, but from the safety of the West Ukraine or Poland. Um, yesterday I went and donated blood. I'm giving lessons to my students free of charge so the kids get distracted and parents have some peace. We are financially supporting our friends because a lot of people cut off their income. I'm buying groceries for our neighbors and I don't get any money because there are slim pickings in the stores. Actually, they're only caviar and like uh, super expensive prosciutto and cheese. Mm. So retired people, they could barely make the ends meet before the war. Now it's even more difficult for them. Is it a constant risk assessment for you? Will there be a time when you feel as though it's dangerous enough that you will both want to and have to leave Kiev? There might be. There might be a time. We hope it will not come to that, but there might be a time, yes. On the subject of risk assessment, uh, what can I say? I can say that uh, 
250 people out of 4 million population in were, Kiev. Uh, were victims of uh, bombings of civilian population in Kiev. So, you, you know, judging by the numbers, it's uh, relatively safe. We are considering the options, but as of uh, now, we are not planning to leave. When we um, immigrated from Ukraine, we had to wait half a year in Austria and Italy in refugee camps. In the times of peace, I'm still in recovery uh, from those refugee camps. So this is something I'm not really looking forward to join. Your daughter is still here in the greater Boston area. How can you, if you can, assure her that you're safe? That's a good question. Well, we cannot assure her that we are safe. We, we are only trying to convince her that the risk is uh, low. Thank you to both of you, and, and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, and um, thank you for your courage. Um, one more thing I want to add. I don't think that you're doing anything courageous or heroic. I think that um, any human being in our position should and would be doing the same. That is American citizens and former Swampscott residents Helen and Leon on their life in Ukraine and their decision to stay in Kyiv despite the war around them. January, Australian tennis fans got to celebrate a homegrown champion. Ash Barty is the Australian Open champion. That's Australia's own Ash Barty, the world's number one player, also a winner of Wimbledon and the French Open, who at age 25 has just announced she is leaving the sport. I'll be retiring from tennis and it's the first time I've actually said it out loud and um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but I'm so happy and I'm so ready. On Instagram yesterday, she said she was physically spent and ready for the next phase of her life. During the professional tennis phase of her life, she was known for keeping her public image focused on her successes on the court, not in courting celebrity. She was known for this this blazing authenticity. She, she played on her own terms. She ran her career on her own terms. She knew what she liked. She knew what she didn't like. And she really sort of was, she was the boss. John Wertheim is a writer for Sports Illustrated and analyst for the Tennis Channel. He says although the announcement may come as a surprise, there are positive ways to look at it. It speaks to the strength of women's tennis and of women's sports that they create a star who feels comfortable and is sufficiently uh, you know, wealthy and satisfied that at age 25, she has the, the, the confidence and the, and the sense of self to say, you know what? I'm good here. Enough is enough. Wertheim says Barty's early retirement ultimately reflects well on her legacy, and the reaction to it testifies to how popular women's tennis has become.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Rice University, where being bold is a virtue for its global community of scholars, pursuing unconventional wisdom in the heart of Houston to build a better future for all. Learn more at rice.edu. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits, at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Checking sports, Minnesota Twins beat the Boston Red Sox in spring training play today, 10 to 4. We've got some messy weather on the way. Tonight, rain and sleet sometime after midnight. Temperatures around the mid 30s overnight tonight should be windy as well. Tomorrow, a rainy day, breezy again with highs about 43. Then finally, for Friday, things should clear out. We should have partly sunny skies, a dry day with high temperatures in the low 60s. 41 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 559. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 wbua Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government has died. Madeleine Albright was born a child refugee from Soviet-dominated Eastern Europe. She rose to become the first female Secretary of State in the U.S. Madeleine Albright was 84 years old. It's Wednesday, March 23rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, a new law in Idaho bans most abortions and relies on citizens to enforce it by filing lawsuits against abortion providers. One lawsuit could pretty much wipe out an entire clinic, and that is probably part of the motivation. The measure is patterned after a law passed in Texas last year. And March Madness is hitting a fever pitch as only the last Sweet 16 teams are left standing on the men's and women's brackets. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Ukrainian officials are warning of a humanitarian catastrophe in cities and towns north of the capital, Kyiv. NPR's Yulian Haidal reports from western Ukraine that fighting near Kyiv has cut off a major supply line. Ukrainian forces and humanitarian convoys had been depending on a bridge over the river Desna to access the northern city of Chernihiv. But regional officials say that Russian forces destroyed that bridge Wednesday, trapping both Ukrainians and Russians on the other side. Chernihiv runs the risk of becoming the next Mariupol, says Oleksiy Arostovich, an advisor to Ukraine's president. A blockade has crippled that southern city for the last three weeks, with gas, water and electricity being hard to come by. Meanwhile, Russians have continued to shell major cities in both Ukraine's north and south, even as humanitarian evacuations have slowed. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. 
President Biden has arrived in Brussels a month into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He'll discuss next steps with NATO allies in Brussels. As his administration today formally accused Russia's armed forces of committing war crimes, NPR's Michelle Kellman reports Washington is promising to track atrocities for future trials. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he carefully reviewed U.S. intelligence and public information about Russia's attacks before reaching the assessment that, quote, Russia forces have committed war crimes in Ukraine. His point person on the matter, Beth Van Skok, says it's important to shine a light on this. It's also extremely important to continue to document what's happening on the ground to preserve that information as potential evidence for future accountability purposes. She says Russia has bombed apartment buildings, schools, hospitals and critical infrastructure in its, quote, unprovoked war of choice in Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Madeleine Albright, the nation's first female secretary of state, has done Died. Her family says that she died from cancer. Albright served as Secretary of State in the Clinton administration. State Department spokesman Ned Price says she was a mentor to many. She took so many people under her wing uh, that uh, you have to imagine just how large that, that wingspan came to, uh, came to be. So it's a really devastating piece of news. I know there are many people in this building who uh, are grieving and who will be grieving uh, today. And our thoughts, of course, uh, are with her, her family and the many, many people she touched. Born in Czechoslovakia, Albright fled with her family after the 1939 Nazi occupation. She was 84. Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson is facing another day of stiff questioning at Senate confirmation hearings, declaring that she will rule without agenda. The Dow fell 448. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The number of newly confirmed cases of coronavirus in the state is back up over 1,000. The State Department of Public Health reports 1,074 new cases since yesterday. The weekly percentage of people testing positive for the virus is also creeping up. It's now just under 2%. The city of Boston is creating a new office that it hopes will affirm and uplift the LGBTQ plus community. Mayor Michelle Wu says the office will help develop policies to advance the rights of Boston residents who identify as LGBTQ+. Wu says black and brown members of the trans community face disproportionate levels of violence and discrimination. The city is looking for an executive director to lead the office. Businesses and nonprofits in the state will soon have access to funding, state tr- funding to train and bring on board new employees. The Hire Now program will offer grants of $4,000 per new employee. It's designed to get people into open jobs that they may not have the precise experience or training for. State Labor Secretary Rosalind Acosta says she hopes the program will push businesses to look outside their usual pool of applicants. This is a great opportunity for you to say there's no experience needed. We want you. We will train you. We will invest in you. Acosta says eligible businesses must pay workers between $14.25 and $42.50 an hour. UMass Boston is getting more than $1.3 million for a nursing and health sciences building. Congressman Stephen Lynch announced the investment today as part of a federal funding package to support public health. The new facility will be home to multiple nursing and health care programs in Greater Boston. The Holocaust and Genocide Center at Bristol Community College is announcing a new library collection today. It includes more than 1,000 books as well as digital resources. Center Director Ronald Weisberger says he hopes the collection helps people understand the factors that lead to genocide. It's more relevant than ever because there's been rise 
in uh, racism and anti-Semitism around the country. And there's a lot of misinformation out here. So the, the importance of this is to do real educations. Teachers and faculty can take out materials from the collection to incorporate into their school curricula. Genocide education was made mandatory in public and public middle and high schools in the state in December. And the governor of Rhode Island is pushing his plan for more offshore wind power. Governor Dan McKee is looking for an additional 660 megawatts of offshore power, enough to power 340,000 homes. He claims the plan will further position Rhode Island as the North American hub for the offshore wind industry. He was expected to lobby lawmakers for environmental agency officials today for their support. In the forecast overnight tonight, rain, sleet, mostly after midnight, lows about 36. Tomorrow, rainy, breezy, highs about 43. Friday, partly sunny skies and dry, highs in the low 60s. 41 degrees now at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Idaho has become the first state to copy a Texas law that bans most abortions in that state. Idaho Governor Brad Little signed the bill into law today. NPR's Sarah McCammon has been following this. She joins us now. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Juana. So we've heard a lot about what has been happening in Texas since last September when that state banned most abortions. Tell us, what does this new Idaho law do? Well, like the one in Texas, it bans most abortions around six weeks before many people realize they're pregnant. And like Texas, this Idaho law also relies on ordinary citizens to enforce it by filing lawsuits against abortion providers. I talked to Misty Deli carpini tolman the Idaho State Director for Planned Parenthood, about what this would mean there. Unfortunately, we don't even have to guess about what this will look like because we've kind of been watching what's been happening in Texas. So we already know what this looks like. And one of what it looks like is many patients traveling out of state for abortions if they have the means to do so and facing some really difficult decisions if they don't. Mm. Now, the Idaho law is modeled after the law in Texas, but they are not exactly the same, are they? Right. Idaho's law narrows the scope of who can sue. Those people include the patient, certain members of the patient's family, including parents and siblings, also the person who impregnated the patient and some of his family members. So it's not just anyone, you know, like the Texas law, but Mm -hmm. Shakira Sanders, a law professor at the University of Idaho, says in practice, this is a distinction without a difference. If there are 10 siblings and parents, all of those people can sue you. And so you can see how one lawsuit could pretty much wipe out an entire clinic. Penalties for doctors who violate this law are twice as high as those in Texas, starting at $20,000 wow. as well. Okay. As you mentioned, this law does allow certain family members to file lawsuits against abortion providers. And there's been a lot of concern about what that could mean, particularly in situations involving sexual assault. Sarah, what can you tell us there? Yeah, this came up during the legislative debate in the Idaho House last week. I want to play an exchange. Here's Representative Ned Burns, a Democrat, questioning one of the bill's co-sponsors. I understand that someone who has committed a rape would not be able to sue if an abortion were to take place. Would a family member of said rapist be able to sue? Would they have standing? If it is the uh, parents, siblings, aunts and uncles, grandparents, then yes. 
Now, that second voice was Republican Representative Steve Harris, a co-sponsor of the bill. It also says that a rapist cannot sue an abortion provider under this law for terminating a pregnancy. But as we heard, it doesn't preclude that person's family members from doing so. And the Idaho law does contain an exception allowing abortions in cases of rape or incest, unlike the one in Texas. But that's limited. It's only if the victim reports the attack to law enforcement, which many victims don't. And in a statement today, Governor Brad Little expressed concerns about that and asked the legislature to address any unintended consequences. But he did sign the bill into law nonetheless. Hmm. Sarah, what else are you hearing from people who support this legislation? Well, I spoke to Carol Tobias with National Right to Life, which has been promoting this kind of legislation around the country. And simply put, she wants pregnant people to continue these pregnancies regardless of the circumstances. And that includes rape. I think we need to do everything possible to save lives. And we would encourage anybody to take steps necessary to protect that life. Sarah, in the couple seconds we have left here, what's next? Any chance that this law could be blocked in court? Well, it's set to take effect in about 30 days. Reproductive rights groups are weighing all of their options. But as we saw in Texas, court challenges to this type of legislation can be really difficult uh, because of the unusual way the law is written. Meanwhile, several other states are considering similar proposals. That is NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Leaders of NATO and the G7 hold an emergency summit this week in Brussels to discuss the war in Ukraine. But Ukrainian officials are hoping for more than speeches and pledges of solidarity. Ukraine wants weapons and sanctions to fight back against Russia. NPR's Jason Bobian joins us from Lviv. Hey, Jason. Hey, Ari. First, let me ask you about reports that Russia has lost somewhere between 7,000 and 15,000 troops already in the first month of the war. Even the low end of that number is wildly high. Give us some perspective on this. Yeah, I mean, this is getting a lot of play here. People are paying attention to this. Uh, these reports are coming from unnamed NATO officials, and they are estimates. You know, But if these numbers are true, you know, at least 7,000 dead, those are devastating losses for the Russians. To, to put this in context, the U.S. lost 2,500 service members in Afghanistan over the course of two decades. So this number of deaths for the Russians in just the first four weeks is staggering. All right, now let's turn to the upcoming meetings in Brussels. NATO leaders and leaders from the G7 are gathering specifically to discuss the crisis in Ukraine. Yeah. What do Ukrainians hope to come out of this? Well, you know, to try to get a better sense of that, I, I spoke today with the former Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko. He was president from 2014 to 2019. Poroshenko says what Ukraine needs right now from the international community are even harsher economic sanctions on Russia and more weapons to fight Russian troops on the ground. We need anti-aircraft, anti-missiles and jet fighters. Given that NATO has rejected requests for a no-fly zone, Poroshenko wants NATO to donate any MiG fighters that they can get their hands on to, to Ukraine. Ukraine wants MiGs because they're, these are the planes that their pilots have been trained on and, and know how to fly. How optimistic is he that NATO and European allies will come through with more military support? Um, he believes that they will, but he is concerned that that support might not come fast enough. Uh, he makes the argument that Ukraine is just the first step in Putin's military efforts. Next, Putin might go after the Baltic states, he says, or try to annex Moldova. His message to the world is... This is not you assisting or helping Ukraine. This is not true. You investing in your own security. And that's why it's so important tomorrow NATO meeting and just sanction against Russian oligarchy is not enough. 
He wants even more sanctions against Russia, and he wants pledges that the international community is going to help repair the billions and billions of dollars in damages that Ukraine has already suffered in this war. So many millions of people have fled Ukraine. Where was the former president when you spoke to him? You know, he's still in the capital. He's in Kyiv. Uh, we spoke over Skype. Uh, he was describing the constant shelling that's happening just a few miles away from the office he was in. He talked about the air raid sirens that are going off constantly. Poroshenko said that it's devastating for him and for most Ukrainians to see the destruction that's happening all over their country over the last month. Uh, he spoke specifically about the besieged port city of Mariupol. Uh, Putin has argued that one of the reasons he invaded Ukraine was to protect Russian-speaking people in the country, and this, this was Poroshenko's reaction to that. Do you know, I'm not sure that you know, that, that Mariupol is most Russian-speaking city in Ukraine. More than 82% of Mariupol uh, inhabitants speaks Russian. Poroshenko says the destruction of Mariupol now just illustrates the cruelty of Putin's invasion. That is NPR's Jason Bobian reporting from Lviv in western Ukraine. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome, Ari. More than three million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded. For the crowds that have streamed across the border at one Polish border crossing, they leave behind the air raid sirens and the sounds of war and are welcomed by this. That's musician Davide Martello playing his baby grand piano at the Medica border crossing, the busiest one between Ukraine and Poland. Martello is from Germany. I just came here like 15 hours, drove, I drove 15 hours. It's definitely better than staying at home in front of the TV and watching the news, you know. So instead of watching the news, Martello headed towards it. He put his cat in the car. He's cool with everything, any, any, anyone, and he loves people. He hitched up his piano and towed it those 15 hours. Then he parked it on the dirt at the sprawling aid station that has sprung up at Medica, which is where Martello was when we reached him. I'm at my piano right now. I wanted to play something. Uh, what about Imagine? During the past few weeks, Martello has watched the aid station at Medica grow. People are coming in. They need, like, food. They need uh, clothes. Like, see all the clothes here? Behind him are piles of donated clothing and firewood. Volunteers pass out tea, food, and toiletries. And Martello provides the music. Maybe I've been here before. I've seen this room. And I walk this floor. I used to live alone before. After crossing, people come to him with requests, like this duet sung by a woman bundled up in the cold. The notes drift through the air along with campfire smoke, adding what he hopes is a bit of warmth to people's welcome. They, they ask me like songs in Ukrainian, and I try to, to play them. I'm trying to learn the songs like right away. Martellus says one of the most moving experiences of his life came recently when an elderly woman held a blanket over his head, protecting him from the snow. Like I was playing yesterday, and she was singing it with me, next to me, and with the blanket on me, like, and it was snowing. That was a moment. That was like a crazy moment. Thank you. <laughs> Martello says he's just not sure yet when he'll pack up and head home. If I 
would go back to Germany, I would be, man, what I'm doing here? People still need some positivity, some, some art, some music, you know? I mean, I wish there were, would be more musicians here, but I, I guess I'm the only one. <laughs> and with that, Martello had to go. Okay, so it was nice seeing you and talk to you, but uh, I'm going to play some more. People had gathered around the piano. Yeah, people are already already waiting. And Martello played. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, Remembrance of Madeleine Albright, coming up on WBUR. Checking business hiring was up in the Boston area in the first three months of the year. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports the area added 127,000 jobs between January and March, a 5% increase. Leisure and hospitality had the biggest jump, more than 53,000 jobs. That's a 32% gain compared to about a 19% gain in the sector nationally. On Wall Street, the price of oil is rising today, the value of the Dow stocks fell. The Dow was down more than one and a quarter percent, 449 points. It finished at 34,359. S&P and Nasdaq also lost about the same, around one and a quarter percent. S&P ended the day down at 44.56. The Nasdaq settled at 13,923. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood. A trip to Tanglewood is an escape to extraordinary. Enjoy music by BSO, Boston Pops, and more amidst the beauty of the Berkshire Hills. More at tanglewood.org. Red Sox fell to the Minnesota Twins 10-4 today in spring training play. And cornerback Malcolm Butler is going to be returning to the New England Patriots on a two-year free agent deal. Butler went from undefeated rookie to pro bowler during his earlier stint with the Pats in 2014. This deal is said to be worth up to $9 million. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan. A wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Hope you enjoyed the sunshine from today because it's sitting tomorrow out. Look for rain and even sleet late tonight. No accumulation of the sleet expected. Overnight lows in the mid-30s. And for tomorrow, rain pretty much all day long. Heavy at times, a strong wind behind the rain. Highs only about 43 degrees. Friday, partly sunny and dry. Still on the windy side, warming to about 62. 41 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Madeleine Albright has died at the age of 84. As the first woman to serve as Secretary of State, she changed the face of diplomacy around the world. Her family said the cause of death was cancer. Albright was an outspoken American diplomat even after she left office. Here she was in 2012 upon learning that she would be receiving the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It took me quite a long time to find my voice, but I'm not going to be quiet now. 
Albright was born in Prague. Her family fled Czechoslovakia first from the Nazis and then the communists. In the Clinton administration, she served alongside White House Chief of Staff John Podesta, who joins us now. Welcome, and I'm sorry for your loss. Well, thank you, Ari. Uh, she was obviously a dear friend. It's a huge loss for all of us who loved her, but it was a loss for the country, too. How would you describe Madeleine Albright's approach to diplomacy and her view of the U.S. role in the world? Because she was a fierce advocate for our country, but more profoundly for democracy, for freedom, for human rights. I think it came from her upbringing, from her and her family having to flee first Nazi Germany and then flee uh, communism. And, uh, you know, she just loved America. She won't, She so wanted it to live up to its ideals. And she projected that in every conversation I think she had with with uh, foreign diplomats. Hmm. The New York Times quoted her as once saying, everybody has their own style and mine is people to people. Tell us what that people to people style looked like in practice. Well, you know, look, she was like, very straightforward, whether she was talking to the president uh, or talking to a foreign dictator. Uh, she would just, you know, be extremely straightforward. And I think uh, what that meant was that people trusted her. They knew that she was going to give it to them straight and that they could deal with her straight. If she, she gave her word, she kept her word. Uh, she had a coterie of former foreign ministers who served with her, who she stayed in touch with for the last 20 years, trying to provide mm. uh, advice to a younger generation of diplomats. And she was a great mentor to so many young women through her teaching at, uh, at Georgetown and Michigan, Wellesley, and other places. Um, I imagine but, those other foreign ministers all, were almost all men, that she stood out in that she, group. <laughs> she, she, it was Madeline and her boys. <laughs> hmm. She referred to them as. And, of course, yes, uh, they were, uh, every other one of them was men, and they all, uh, she was the leader of the pack, though. They all respected her greatly. She was a powerful leader. And tell us what she was like in more personal, private settings. Is there a moment, a memory that you'll treasure as you think back on the years you spent working with her? Yeah, I was thinking about that. We used to travel overnight uh, with the president on our overseas trip, and we shared a cabin. And I, uh, I, we sometimes slept on the floor of that cabin in, in the morning to try to get a few hours sleep before we go into meetings, she'd gig me and say, people are going to say we're sleeping together. (laughs) You know, she just had a, (laughs) she just, she just had a wonderful sense of humor. She was, she lit up the room. Uh, She loved uh, being in Aspen in her, in her, you know, home state of Colorado where she had grown up and uh, would love to sing, would love to, uh, you know, regale in, in, in stories. And, you know, people just love being with her. And she continued to play an active public role after her time in government. I mean, she wrote an op-ed about Vladimir Putin as recently as last month. Tell us about yeah. her post-administration life. Well, you know, she stayed as an active uh, advisor to, to uh, you know, mostly to, uh, to uh, Democrats. But I think that uh, to, I think if you ask Secretary Rice or President Bush, maybe not so much with President Trump, you know, they, they often reached out to her to get her advice uh, and of course, she was very, very close to President Obama, to Secretary Clinton. And uh, as you noted, just a month ago, she uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times to, that the West had to stand up uh, to Putin's aggression. Uh, the last time I talked yeah. to her really was about that and how much I admired what she had written. And she said to me, you know, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, and there, that was indeed true. And uh, we'll yeah. miss her voice in those debates.
John Podesta was chief of staff in the Clinton White House and worked closely with the late former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, who died today at 84. Thank you for remembering your friend and colleague with us. Thank you, Eric. March Madness rolls on this week. The men's and women's Division I college basketball tournaments have whittled their respective fields down to 16 teams. The men begin playing in the so-called Sweet 16 tomorrow, the women on Friday. And now NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman joins me to preview the upcoming action. Hey, Tom. Hi, Juana. All right. The men play tomorrow, so let's start there. I love a good David versus Goliath story in sports, and I guess basketball fans' favorite David right now is the St. Peter's Peacocks. Tom, what can you tell us about them? The Peacocks are the pride of Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, They pulled off the upset of the tournament so far in the first round as a lowly 15th seed beat number two seeded Kentucky, one of college basketball's perennially top programs. Um, Then the Peacocks beat Murray State and became just the third number 15 seed to make it this far to the Sweet 16. After that win, St. Peter's head coach Shaheen Holloway was asked about Murray State trying to muscle the Peacocks with physical play. Here's what he said. I got guys from New Jersey and New York City. You think we scared of anything? You think we worried about guys trying to muscle us and tough us out? We do that. Our bodies probably don't look like it, but these guys play very hard and very physical. So that I wasn't worried about at all. When you got tough, hard-nosed kids, they, they ready to play. And Juana, they're not just tough kids from New Jersey and New York. The worldly Peacocks also have players from Central African Republic, Mali, Puerto Rico, Senegal, and they've been pretty tough too. Now, St. Peter's uh, Sweet 16 matchup is against number three seeded Purdue, which plays great offense. St. Peter's has been playing great defense. We will see which prevails and whether the Peacocks can keep, sorry about this, strutting. (laughs) Had to sneak that one in. All right, so Gonzaga was the number one (laughs) overall seed going into the men's tournament they are also in the sweet 16 are they still the favorites yes but and and the but is because in its two wins so far gonzaga hasn't exactly dominated and the bulldogs have relied heavily on star uh, junior forward drew timmy in both games he's been fantastic if future opponents starting with arkansas tomorrow figure out how to contain timmy the zags may be vulnerable Turning now to the women's tournament, all of the number one seeds, including defending champion Stanford, have made it to the Sweet 16, but I take it there have also been a few surprises. Yeah, there have been. Uh, Creighton and South Dakota, the biggest ones, they are still alive. They're uh, number 10 seeds. They pulled off some big upsets early on. Uh, South Dakota beat Baylor by double digits. Creighton did a great job uh, containing Iowa's star player, Caitlin Clark, the top scorer in the nation. Now, these wins seem to change a narrative that the women's tournament isn't as deep as the men's. Those who follow the women's game closely say, actually, that narrative has been changing for a while. It's just that this year's upsets amplify it and confirm Confirm the March Madness branding the women are getting to use for the first time this year. Tom, and lastly, in the few seconds we have left, there has been some news about a former great player in the women's tournament, current WNBA star Brittany Griner, who has been detained in Russia since last month on drug smuggling allegations. What's the latest there? Yeah, the State Department said uh, a U.S. Embassy official in Moscow was given access to Griner this week for the first time, and the official reported she's in good condition. Obviously, that's good news um, about a scary situation. It was Mm -hmm. reported last week Griner's detention is being extended to at least May 19th. Good news indeed. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman, thank you. You're welcome, Juana. This is NPR News. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and building socially responsible investment portfolios for 25 years. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Boston Standard Company, helping to keep your home comfortable with plumbing, heating, cooling, and electrical solutions. Learn more at bostonstandardplumbing.com.